If you could uh, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to just read together uh, verse 8 to 15 as we continue our studies uh, in Paul's letter to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Just so far in God's word this morning, uh, in this new series on contending for the faith. And uh, the topic we're looking at this morning is God's pattern in the church, gender roles. Sorry, I've got a bit of a smaller pulpit here this, this morning, so I'm just battling to find space for everything here. Let me just, there we go, okay. So first thing, let me just say that I'm convinced that God has a wonderful sense of humor. Because on the day that we come to consider uh, the most hotly debated and socially unacceptable passage in all of Scripture on the role of women in the church, the Lord has provided a great big fish to come and swallow me uh, to spare my life. But seriously though, this is God's word. And, and I hope to, to be able to show you today that what God says in this passage is fundamentally good. And it is good because God is good and there is great blessing in following God's ways and God's pattern in the church, especially as we will see today with regards to gender roles. So, so to start off this morning, let me just perhaps state the obvious. Although the world we are living in today, it's becoming far less obvious. But here it is. Boys and girls are different. Men and women are different. Why? Because God made them different. Now, there is great confusion in society today about what it means to be a man or a woman, and the statement that I've just made about men and women being different is at the forefront of the attack in, in what is being termed the gender revolution. Now, I've got this um, copy back in, in 2017, January 2017, just over six years ago, the, the National Geographic magazine, I'm sure you're all aware of it, and you don't have to worry too much about the details, but you can see a group of people on the front cover of this edition, um, released a special issue, a special issue, and they called it the gender revolution, the shifting landscape of gender. 
and the cover article was entitled Rethinking Gender, Freed from the Binary of Boy and Girl, Gender Identity is a Shifting Landscape. The cover photo looks like a fairly typical group of teenagers, of young adults, but if you look at the individual labels around each person, it tells a very different story. Intersex non-binary, transgender female, bi-gender, transgender male, androgynous and male. Now, let me illustrate the, the seriousness of, of this thinking uh, in a slightly different way. Can you imagine the leading scientific journal of the day coming out with a special issue entitled The Number Revolution? the shifting landscape of mathematics, and the feature article entitled Rethinking Numbers, freed from the identities of one and two, mathematics is a shifting landscape. Well, that's just ridiculous. Because as old as the universe is, we know that the unchanging laws of science and mathematics have been woven into the very fabric of our world and our existence. And the, the physical world as we know it and live in it and interact with it is constructed on these unchanging laws of God's created order. But when we come to the fundamental building block of nature in general and of humanity in particular, we see that from scientific observation and logical deduction that for the last 6,000 years of history, Life on earth is based on the fact that boys and girls have been created by God as different. Gender is not the product of evolution, which is slowly shifting into some new form because we know that what the Bible says about how God made Adam and Eve, it's not only plain to see and has been ever since the beginning of creation, but it is essential to the actual existence and propagation of life itself. And so what mankind has known since the beginning of time is that God made human beings as male and female, and this has been held as an undeniable truth even by societies and civilizations who never knew anything of the God of the Bible or what God reveals to us in the scriptures about his created order. Now, granted that throughout history as well, we have to acknowledge that there have always been sinful distortions to the expression of God's created order in gender and secu uh, sexuality. And so we're not denying that this morning. We, we know why that is, because part of the curse of sin on the earth was that gender roles would become confused. And the sinful hearts of men would indulge in, in lustful behavior that went against God's created order. And likewise, the sinful heart of woman would desire that which is contrary to God's plan. So as we look back over history, male dominance and harsh, insensitive um, oppression of woman is the distortion of God's pattern. Female rebellion and seductive manipulation is another distortion of God's pattern. Homosexual relations is another distortion of God's pattern. 
And in each of these cases where mankind deviates from God's good pattern, we see that God's word clearly condemns the behavior as sinful and unacceptable, and he commands us to return back to his original created pattern of male and female, both made in the image of God, both of equal value and worth, but distinct in gender, with specific God-given roles in his created order. Male and female who then come together in marriage, which is a lifelong covenant relationship between one man and one woman who form a family unit out of which children grow and flourish. Now, while most Christians will acknowledge that God's word is clear about the unique differences between men and women physically and emotionally and socially, the issue of gender identity and, and gender roles has become at best blurry in the last 20 to 30 years and um, more specifically totally confused in the last 10 years. There have been many and varied feminist movements uh, over the history of the past, many of which rightly uh, opposed the various forms of male abuse and dominance and oppression, which was unbiblical. And Christians have always stood firm through those periods of history on what God's word says about gender roles, specifically in marriage, which we're not really going to be looking at today, but also in the church, which is the focus of our portion today. God's word has always been understood to be very clear on these things. But the modern LGBTQI plus movement with its celebrity spokespeople and prominent government support and pervasive social media campaigns has now resulted in Christians and the Bible coming under direct attack, where we are told that biblical views on gender and sexuality and marriage and the roles of men and women in the home and in the church are simply old-fashioned and basically irrelevant. Why? Because they come out of an ancient, bigoted, male chauvinistic book written by patriarchal men in a society of a bygone era, which really has absolutely nothing to do with our freedom and our enlightenment as 21st century people. And so this is where the rubber is hitting the road for us as Christians as far as what it means to be Bible-believing in 2023. I don't think it's going to be too far in the distant future where the greatest persecution most likely that Christians will have to face in the past 100 years maybe will have to do with holding on to a biblical understanding of male and female, of gender and sexuality and marriage. So the tide is not turning. The, the tide has turned. People who believe that boys are born as boys, who then grow up to become men, who then get married to women who were born as girls and grew up to be women, those people are very quickly becoming the freaks of society. We are being written off as ignorant, Irrelevant, and in actual fact, the latest argument is that we are now a danger to society 
and to this new gender freedom. So what the Bible says on this topic today, particularly as we consider the role of women in the church, is absolutely crucial for us to grasp and to believe. This is really the front line of the spiritual battle at the moment, and ultimately it is a battle against the Word of God. Is the Word of God true? Is it authoritative, and am I then going to live according to it? So that's the, the modern context into which we need to apply the scriptures this morning. But what was the original context uh, into which Paul was writing? Let's start there. We always need to start there in order to rightly understand and apply the scriptures. Well, we know that Paul was writing to Timothy to, to correct the, the issues of false teaching in the church in Ephesus. And we've seen already that he laid a, a solid foundation of truth uh, and then a foundation of grace in chapter one. And then in chapter two, he moved on to deal with the proper functioning of the church. How should the church of God function biblically in order to be healthy? And we saw last time that the matter of first importance for Paul uh, was the issue of corporate prayer in verses one to seven. But now Paul moves on to speak about the specific roles of men and women in the church. And although today we will mainly focus on the role of women in the church, he does have something to say to the men, uh, but we'll get back to the men in chapter three in more detail. And Paul's overarching concern is that everything done in the church should be done ultimately with God's glory in mind. And specifically, as we read Paul more widely, the mutual edification, the mutual building up of the church. Everything Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, as he's dealing with the whole issue of spiritual gifts in the church, his conclusion comes down to this. Let everything be orderly, be helpful, and be building up of the church. That's the goal, the mutual edification of the body. And so we're not sure from the context if what Paul is addressing in these verses this morning is also directly linked to false teaching, but it certainly is linked to the attitudes of the people to the worship of God. And they, their attitudes left much to be desired. And so Paul now turns to address this problem in the church. And so he starts uh, in verse 8 with the men uh, and the attitude of men in worship. Let's read verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now what we have in, in this verse is something uh, which we come across throughout the Bible, namely, how do we distinguish between what is a biblical principle that, that is a timeless command versus that which is a biblical principle applied into a specific cultural context. So for example, four times in the New Testament, uh, in Romans and in 1 and 2 Corinthians and in 1 Thessalonians, so in four different places, we are instructed by Paul to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now I don't know about you, but I didn't give or receive any holy kisses this morning. But I certainly did experience many warm handshakes and a couple of hugs this morning as I greeted many of you and you greeted me as you came to church. You see, the timeless principle which Paul gave to the churches comes out clearly in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. 
aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, implied with one another, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And here comes the application of that. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. So the biblical principle I hope you can see is very clear there in verse 11. It's the instruction, the command for the church to live at peace with God and with each other and to aim for unity and restoration uh, and fellowship, mutually encouraging one another, supporting one another. And he says, well, how do you do that? How do you show that? Well, when you gather, greet one another with a holy kiss. This was something that was the culturally accepted normal way for friends and family, those that were in relationship with each other, to greet each other. So as we come back to, to verse 8 then of, of uh, to Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, what is the timeless principle in verse 8? And, and what is the cultural expression of that principle? Is Paul giving us a command that every time men pray in the church, we are to pray with our hands lifted to heaven? Is that the point of his teaching? Is that the command? And I don't believe that that is what Paul is, is saying at all. The standard posture in first century Judaism and early Christianity was that men would stand with their hands raised to heaven, normally with their heads lifted, their faces looking towards the skies, and often would pray with their eyes open. The problem that Paul was encountering in Ephesus, however, was that men in the church were coming to the worship service in anger, anger in their hearts towards their brothers or sisters in Christ. And perhaps were even using the opportunity of prayer as a platform to quarrel and to argue with other men in the congregation. Oh God, I, I thank you for Joe over there. But Lord, you know that Joe's understanding of the doctrine of election is somewhat confused. So Lord, won't you please just show him how right I am and that he needs to listen to me, amen. So while their hands were lifted to the sky, Paul says they were not holy hands because their hearts were far from God. They were using the church, they were using the so-called worship of God as an opportunity to express anger, to quarrel with others in the church. No, says Paul, I desire that prayer of which I've just been speaking about in the first seven verses should be offered up to God with, with clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 24 verse 3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So the timeless principle for men from this passage this morning is this. Your attitude to God in worship and especially in the corporate praying of the church should be one of being God-focused, seeking to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, not allowing your pride and your ego and your earthly status to come with you into church so that you bring your quarrels and your lack of self-control into the church and where you, you then cloak your sinful heart attitudes in a veneer of spiritual language but where your words actually 
break down instead of build up. Now this might mean for us men that we need to first go and apologize to our wives and to our children before we come and worship God because we lost our cool with them. We were harsh with them. We've allowed our anger to to get in the way of worshiping God. It might mean that we find a, a brother or sister in the church with whom we've had an altercation during the course of the week or last month. Or some of you are carrying baggage of altercations with brothers and sisters in Christ from five or 10 years ago. You need to go and make right with them, says Paul, seeking their forgiveness and confessing our sins to the Lord before we come to worship God. The cultural expression of verse eight might look very different in our context, but the principle is clear. Make sure your heart is right with others and certainly right with God before coming to worship God in the church. So let's move on then in the second place to see what Paul says about the attitude of woman to worship. We need to see that verse nine flows straight out of verse eight. He starts with the word likewise. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with that which is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So Paul now turns to women and, and likewise is primarily not concerned about what they wear, but about their heart attitude in worship which is expressed in this Ephesian context by their clothes and their jewelry and their hairdos. The problem we are told in Ephesus was a cultural one. Uh, It was part of a Roman cultural feminist awakening where the woman who either came into a lot of money uh, through the death of their husband or who had now made a very successful career for themselves And so they broke out of any kind of financial oppression and they were using this money to buy extravagant dresses, uh, very expensive jewelry. They would plait their hairdos with gold chains and pearls and other jewels woven into very elaborate and showy hairdos. And then they would see the church gathering as an opportunity uh, to flaunt their wealth and beauty. And so Paul here is addressing the heart of worship, which is that worship is not about you. It's not about me. It's all about God. And everything about the way we dress and the way we carry ourselves as we gather for worship, Paul says should be done in a spirit of modesty, self-control, and respect. Respect for God We're not out to try and outshine God's glory in the clothes and the latest brands and the newest sneakers and the the latest gadgets and whatever it is. It's not the platform on a Sunday. It's all about God. We're respecting him, but we also respect others in the church who come from all kinds of backgrounds and walks of life so that we are not a distraction to them worshiping God. And so there's an application here. Girls, teenagers, young adult ladies, women, If you dress and adorn yourself to be noticed on a Sunday, 
noticed by a boy, noticed by a man in the church, noticed by other women in the church, Paul says your heart is not right before God. The principle is clear. What is proper for Christian women is modesty, self-control, and good works. That should be your adornment. Why? Because that glorifies God, not you. Not extravagant clothes and jewelry to draw attention to yourself. Short skirts, low necklines. No, he says, respectable apparel, which shows that your heart is here to worship God and you are serving others in the church by the way you dress, by the way you conduct yourself so that they too can worship God. So we see that in verse eight and nine, both the men and the women in the church in Ephesus had heart issues. Heart issues surrounding the worship of God. It looked very different, but the problem was the same. Each group was putting themselves and their own agenda first, not realizing that worship is all about God and about doing and dressing in such a way as to edify and to build up, not to break down and and cause to stumble. So there's a, a clear application from those first two verses. Make sure your heart is right with God. Make sure your heart is right with others when you come to church. Don't use the worship of God as a platform for your own agendas and your own self-interest. Now Paul will come back to, to men uh, next week when he looks at what God requires of them in terms of church leadership but the next point to address is now the role of women in the church. We've seen the heart attitude of both men and women. Now we're coming to the role of women in worship. Now here's where we get to the part that doesn't sit well with our culture today. And it may not perhaps sit well with you this morning. But I'm asking that you let me just take you through this passage before you decide how you will respond. There's a bag of looked like fraught bananas in the kitchen. I'm not sure if they're for Holiday Club or, or aimed at me, but um, wait, let's just get our way through, um, through this passage uh, before we jump to conclusions. Paul gives two instructions in verses 11 to 14, two commands in this passage regarding the roles of women in the church. Firstly, he commands that women learn quietly with all submissiveness in the church. And secondly, he commands that women may not teach or exercise authority over men in the church. Now, what we must understand is that in the context, Paul's first command, that a woman must learn quietly with all submissiveness in the church, was absolutely radical. It was totally countercultural, but probably not the way that you are thinking about it as a 21st century person. You see, in Jewish and Greek culture of 2,000 years ago, women were considered as inferior intellectually to men and were either discouraged from learning or in extreme cases were entirely prevented from learning. In Jewish synagogue gatherings, women were kept separate from men and all the teaching was done only to the men. There was like a big division, ladies on this side, men on this side, and all the teaching was done only to the men. And the woman could listen over the top of the screen if they really wanted to, but they were discouraged from doing that. 
Similarly, in Greek culture, married women were kept mostly to the confines of their homes. They were not educated. They were seldom given the opportunity to leave the home for interaction in society. Now we know that Jesus came and he completely broke down this culturally low view of women. And he made it clear, as a study of gender across the whole Bible does, that men and women are created equally, in God's image, equal in value and dignity and worth, but with different assigned roles in marriage and in the church. Now, sinful men have always tried to distort this pattern, to degrade women, uh, to subject women to being less than men, and this is an evil that is condemned by God. Boys, I'm so glad some of the younger children are here this morning. Boys, did you hear that? God has not created you in any way better than girls. In actual fact, God has created you to honor girls. And in a sense, God has created you incomplete so that one day you will desire a wife to complete you. But similarly, sinful women have tried to also distort the pattern to usurp man's leadership in the home and to use the power of, of beauty and seduction to manipulate men to do what they desire. This too is an evil that is condemned by God. Just read the Proverbs. So again, girls, did you hear that? God has given you great power over men, a power which is to be used for great good in your marriage one day, but a power which can cause great destruction if used outside of God's plan for marriage. So this is a battle that has been raging ever since the fall, and it continues to rage today. It's an evil distortion of the roles of men and women. Paul, however, comes into a historical context of male oppression, and they mainly accomplish that through poor or no education of women, and he breaks the culture in a massive way as he commands, in verse 11, that woman should learn. Do you see how cultural glasses tend to cloud the, the reality of the scriptures so that we miss the point of what's actually going on here? People read verse 12 today, and they immediately focus on learning quietly with all submissiveness. And they lose the plot with what Paul was actually saying, namely that of restoring women in society to be in the church, equal with men, entitled to and commanded to learn the things of God that were being taught in the church. Theological study, a deep knowledge of God and the scriptures was not to be limited to the realm of men. No, says Paul, I want women to learn they are to study the things of God. And elsewhere he commands women, older women to teach younger women, women to teach children. How can they teach if they themselves have not been taught and learned the things of God? Now, in case you're still battling to swallow that Paul says the woman must learn quietly and in all submissiveness, let me ask you this, especially if you're a mom or a dad or a teacher, have you ever been able to teach a noisy, disrespectful, know-it-all child anything? Of course not. The only way any person, 
male or female, can learn is quietly and in all submissiveness. Paul's not saying women must learn quietly, but men, you can be noisy in church. You can be disrespectful. That's ridiculous. What he's speaking about here is a teachable spirit. And that's what Paul is calling for here in the woman, not to subjectify women to men, but to elevate women to the same as men in terms of sitting together quietly and submissively under the preaching and the teaching and the instruction of the word of God. So verse 12 is really a wonderful verse as Paul breaks with the culture of the day and he elevates women to to be of equal standing with men promoting learning and the study of the word of God. But having shown that women are equal in value before God and should be treated equally in terms of learning in the church, Paul now instructs that two roles in the church are excluded for women, namely that of teaching men uh, and the role of authority over men. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. So Paul says that that women must learn with men, um, but they must not teach men or exercise authority over men because that is not their God-ordained role in the church. Now we're gonna look at this more next time when we get to the section on eldership in the church. But the specific role of an elder, that which distinguishes an elder from a deacon, is the function of spiritual teacher and leader. This this understanding of authority through teaching is limited to the elders. And so what is clear as we work our way through Timothy is that what Paul specifically requires of elders and pastors, which is to lead and to teach the church, that is forbidden for women to do in the church. And throughout church history, the church has concluded that the only office, the only office in the church which is excluded for women is that of being an elder, of which the term pastor is synonymous with that of being an elder or a shepherd. And yet how many churches do you know of today where there are not only women elders, but where the main preaching and teaching ministry is carried out by women? Now the question is, in the light of this passage, how can that be? Isn't Paul absolutely clear? Well, says the evangelical feminist, that's the feminist who claims to believe the scriptures, Paul's instruction in verse 12 is not a timeless principle, they say. It's simply a cultural application which Paul gave into a specific historical context which no longer applies to us today. So just like your holy kiss illustration or the lifting up of holy hands, this too is a cultural application that's not binding on women today. And so churches are free to ignore this teaching, to appoint women to positions of leadership of elder and pastor and to teach and exercise authority over men in the church. Now, how do we respond to that? It seems that I've already used the, the cultural application earlier with holy hands and the, and the kiss Um, What do we do here? Why is that not valid here? Well, it's not valid because Paul says so himself in verse 13. 
Look at verse 13 and 14. Paul shows that his instruction to the church in Ephesus is not a limited cultural context application, but it's binding to people in every church age because he appeals not to the context and problems locally for his justification. He appeals back to creation and the fall. Notice Paul does not say, listen church in Ephesus, because this first generation of Christian women have been poorly educated, because they've never yet had the opportunity to learn, they may not teach or exercise authority over men. But as soon as they get educated, then that's okay, they can do it. No, he doesn't. That would have been a a cultural application which no longer applies. But what he does is he does what Jesus does in Matthew 19 and Mark 10 when when Jesus was challenged about his, his teaching on divorce. Paul does what Jesus does. He goes back to God's pattern in creation and then applies it as a timeless principle. So look at what Paul does in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And he has the reason. For, because, I'm gonna tell you why I've just said what I've said. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So Paul's instruction, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, limits the authority and the teaching ministry in the church to men only, not because he was a male chauvinist bigot, but because he said God established a pattern in the Garden of Eden. And when we break from that pattern, bad things happen. He says Adam was formed first, then Eve. This designates Adam as the leader. And then he goes on to explain that even in the fall itself, it came about because of a reversal of the roles assigned to Adam and Eve. When the serpent came to to sow destruction into God's creation, what did he do? He went straight to Adam. No, he didn't. He went to Eve, and he got Eve to ignore God's assigned roles in creation, where Adam was supposed to be the leader. Adam was supposed to be the protector, and Eve was supposed to be his suitable helper and supporter in the work that God gave them together to do. Instead, Adam did not lead. He did not protect. And so Eve was vulnerable and she was led astray by the devil's lies and led her husband then into sin with her. So this, says Paul, is where it all went wrong. And so we are not to make the same mistake in the church of Jesus Christ. God has assigned the role of elder teacher in the church to men. And please note, men and women, This role that God has assigned to men is not given to all men. We're gonna see that next week. It's only given to some men, a very small percentage of men who have been uniquely called and gifted and qualified by God to the office of elder. One of the specific qualifications for an elder next week is the ability to teach. And remember what James says in James 3 verse 1, not many of you should presume to teach, brothers. Don't become teachers. Why? Because you know that we will be judged more severely, with greater strictness. So just as most men are not called to be elders and teachers in the church, 
only those who meet the qualifications of elders, which we'll see next time, this specific teaching and authority is not permitted to women according to God's pattern in creation. Now, there's so much more we could say uh, positively about the roles of women in the church, all the many, many functions which women are called to do, women teaching other women, women teaching children, private counseling of believers, contributing in prayer meetings and Bible studies in the same way that men do, so much more. We'll have to do that another time. Today we are seeking to be fruit, uh, faithful to the text before us. We need to be obedient to God's word on this matter. And so how we proceed from here today is really not so much about your attitude towards men or towards women in church leadership. It, it really is an issue of submission to the word of God. Does God's word carry authority in your thinking and practice in general? Because today God's word goes against the voice of culture. So you're gonna to have to make a decision. Does it carry weight, especially as it speaks to us today on this issue of gender and the roles of men and women in the church? You see, the whole debate is not about whether men are better elders or women being worse preachers. We know that sometimes, often men make really bad elders. Often men make really poor teachers. Often men are really weak leaders. And we will be judged more strictly by God for those failures. Just as Adam was ultimately assigned the guilt and the responsibility for the fall. That's God's plan. That's God's pattern. And men, we cannot squirm out of that. The issue here is God's word, it's authority over us individually and then as a church, whether we're going to submit to its authority or not. I know I've run over and um, I need to just end in the final place with the really hard verse. It's the only title I could come up with, let me just uh, move on to that for verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So he does not permit a woman to teach or have authority. He goes back to the Garden of Eden. It was Eve that fell. But, he says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Now this verse is notorious for being one of the most difficult verses in all the Bible to properly understand and there are at least six well-recognized interpretations which Paul could be saying. Is he specifically referring to Eve or is he speaking about the Ephesian women or is he talking about all women generally? Is he speaking about spiritual salvation or is he speaking about preservation through childbearing and so the options and permutations continue? Let me just make clear what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that women are spiritually saved by having babies. Right, that's clear. The rest of the New Testament is clear. Even this verse alone makes it clear that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, and even in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, I wish that women would stay single. Why? So that you can devote yourself to the work of the kingdom. So clearly this has got nothing to do with spiritual salvation. So Paul's not saying that women are saved by having babies. What is he saying? 
And here's where I've come to rest on this verse, and I'm happy to talk more about it with you afterwards at some point in the week. Um, I think Paul is illustrating practically what a godly woman's role, generally speaking, looks like, is meant to be, in contrast with those women who are seeking to take over the role which God had assigned to men in the church. He has highlighted that the unique role assigned to men is that to lead and to teach. And now he's instructing women in the church that unlike Eve, they should live out the beauty of their role as women, which is most generally seen, most obviously seen through childbearing and motherhood. Now, I hope that if there is one thing that we can all leave here today agreeing on, it's this. Men cannot have babies. We can't. That was not our assigned role, and it would be wrong for men to try and somehow manipulate God's order and pattern to change this. So just as women have their unique assigned role by God most clearly seen through childbearing, that's one thing that is a unique role given to women, uniquely assigned by God, so men must reveal their uniquely assigned role through faithful leadership and teaching. When we get the roles mixed up or reversed or removed entirely, we find ourselves outside of the pattern of God's order, outside of the blessing which God gives to those who trust in him and obey him. So rather than resist God's word on this topic, let's trust him in all things. He made us, he knows what is best for us. He knows what is best for this church. May God help us to be a godly church as he wants us to be as we embrace this beautiful complementarian roles of men and women in the church. Let's just come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word that you have not left us alone in this world to try and figure out our own way what is good and right and proper, but you have revealed in Scripture that which is good and right and proper, and you are calling us to be obedient and faithful to you. Lord, where we have sinned against women uh, in our homes and in our church, we ask that you would forgive us. Lord, where women have sinned against their husbands and against the church in seeking to change the patterns and the roles that you have given us. Please forgive us. Help us, Lord, to recognize that you are good and you do not make mistakes. Help us to appreciate the very special beauty and value that each human being has been created in your image. Help us to faithfully live out the roles that you have entrusted to us. For we ask this in Jesus' name.